Episode 18 brings us to Jason McLeod, the executive chef and part owner of Consortium Holdings, a restaurant group based here in San Diego. For the lack of a better description, I was introduced to Jason a few years ago through our mutual friend Sarah by way of a series of comments exchanged on Instagram. At the time, Jason had recently opened Ironside, a seafood restaurant in the Little Italy neighborhood of downtown San Diego. We talk about him growing up in Canada, leaving home on a bus with $200 to his name, the influence of the Wu-Tang Clan, and we even touch on what you at home may be doing wrong in the kitchen, as well as his new podcast he's hosting. Jason has been on one heck of a ride that had him traveling all over the world working at some of the finest restaurants, and over the better part of the last decade, he's taken a company from a few bars in downtown to 17 bars and restaurant concepts in what have been dominating the food and beverage scene here in the greater San Diego area. This was a fun one for me, especially since his restaurants are some of the ones my wife and I most frequent. We actually recorded this at Morning Glory, their new breakfast-slash-brunch restaurant shortly after their last service the other day, so there's a small bit of ambient noise there in the background. I really hope you enjoy this one. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, Jason, thanks for doing the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, man, it's good to see you again. Um, We usually start off with kind of how people grew up. So let's talk a little bit about where you're from. Uh, I'm from the West Coast, Canada, uh, Vancouver Island, so just off Vancouver. Uh, Grew up in a small town outside of Victoria um, called Langford, actually. It's not even called that anymore. It's called Royal Colwood or something. They changed the name over years because Langford had this kind of stigma about it. And it's just grown up so much now. I don't even recognize it when I go. What home. was the stigma? It was a little rough. Oh, you know, okay. a rough part of uh, dodgy. Of like, yeah, dodgy. Um, but it kind of grew up a lot. Now it's the most populated city in the southern part of Vancouver Island. No kidding. Um, and the island's big. I mean, a lot of people think island, but it's you know the island's the size of uh, England. So kind of give you an idea of the size of it. Yeah, you know? I guess I never realized that that's the magnitude yeah, of that. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. A lot of people don't know. Vancouver's a great city as well. Phenomenal. Um, beautiful city. Absolutely. Great for food. Yeah, amazing food city. It's got the mountains, got the ocean, golf, got, you got it all. So, yeah, I grew up there um, and then kind of got into the cooking world, you know, and really and that's where it took off for traveling and everything else. But What, were, all, your, what were your parents doing? Uh, my mom kind of worked a few different jobs, counting, kind of all over the place. She worked for the ferry company, the BC Ferries is called, that goes back and forth from Vancouver to Victoria. Uh, she worked for Safeway for a while. My dad worked for a food distributing company called North Douglas. Um, that was end up being bought by Cisco. You know, it was a t- small Italian family that kind of built this great business on Vancouver Island and had really no competition because of being on the island. And Cisco ended up buying it, but he was with them for I don't know thirty five years. Um, so I was around food, but never really like it wasn't important to us. Right, you know? they weren't chefs. It, yeah, it wasn't chefs, and my dad sold food, but you know, a lot of commodity food. And so um, it was never like we didn't sit around the, you know, kitchen counter on Sunday nights talking about, you know, big pies and right. special meals. It was we and we did a lot of sports. My whole family was in sports. My dad and my mom um, coached us, you know, coached our teams. We played, they played. So we really, you know, there wasn't a lot of time for hanging out and cooking. You know, we, we kind of did it all. We were always on the go. And so food was more about fast food and quick bites. And so it was really never anything, you know, special to us, you know, in that sense. 
Um, but you know, I had a great upbringing with, you know, we were, I was very friendship with my parents and kind of what they, you know, taught us about work ethic and, you know, sports and, and what sports were you in hockey? Hockey for sure. That was my diehard. If I ever did anything wrong, I was always punished. You know, I wasn't allowed to watch hockey. That was my biggest punishment growing up. No way. Oh, that was huge. Yeah. I mean, and then I grew up, you know, born in 1970. So I was kind of like in the, you know, this late seventies when I was really into hockey, hockey was big in Canada. You know, we had hockey night in Canada on Wednesday nights and Saturday nights. And so, yeah, if I made a mistake, I was punished and that was my punishment. And that was a big punishment for me, like not to be able to watch hockey. So what were you doing to screw up? Uh, you know, all the odd <laughs> things, you know, just kind of being a kid, you know, throwing sure. rocks at the wrong things. Or, oh yeah. You know, yeah. Breaking toys, or, you know, whatever, getting home late, uh, you know, getting in trouble at school, those type of things. So yeah, that was a big punishment for me. Hockey was big, but I played lacrosse. Uh, baseball, um, soccer, basketball, you know, those are the main sports. We yeah. Played. Just yeah, athlete all around everything. Yeah. And, and my dad coached most of the teams or a lot of the teams that weren't in school, uh, any of like the, the night leagues or anything like that, or the weekend leagues, my dad would coach. My dad played baseball. My mom played baseball. My mom bowled. Sister was a big swimmer, baseball player, soccer player. So we were kind of on the go all year. It was wow. stop. It's yeah, awesome. Absolutely. So then through high school, then you, so when did you get the cooking bug? Um, and I mean, that was totally by accident. I ended up dropping out of high school. Um, and when I got home and told my parents I had left school after the shock kind of, you know, finished, they said, okay, well now you got to pay rent. And I was like, what do you mean pay rent? I don't have any money. And they said, look, you don't go to school and you're going to pay rent. So I was like, well, I, and you're going to live under live our rules. You know, you're going to pay rent and my rules. I'm like, well, wait a minute. If I'm paying a rent, I want to have my own rules type of thing. You know, I was 17 and, and kind of at that stage of kind of like, you know, a lot of rebellious and kind of going through some stuff. Um, so a buddy of mine decided to leave home and we went to Banff, Alberta, which is, I think it's about 500 miles, you know, kind east. of going east yeah. of Vancouver. Right. A ski resort. We had had a buddy that his older brother had spent a summer there and it sounded like a great party town and just a place to kind of go and goof yeah. off. Lake Louise. Yeah. Just, yeah. Right by Lake Louise. Actually. Yeah. And so anyhow, so we, I came home and I said to my mom and dad, okay, I'm, I'm moving to Banff. And they said, well, you, how are you going to do this? I said, I don't know. We're just going. I think I literally think I had $200 to my name, you know, and this was in 1988. So 200 bucks was a little bit further, but not much. Right, right. Um, and really no experiences. I had pumped a bit of gas. You know, I mowed lawn, kind of did all those kind of odd, had a paper route, those type of jobs along the way. And off we went. My mom dropped us off at the bus ter terminal, and we hopped on that bus, and away we went. And got into Banff. And I couldn't get a job because it was kind of off-season. It was April of 1988. Okay. Uh, my buddy had washed dishes before. He got a job right away. And I had been I got turned down about five or six places um, of people just saying, look, we need people with experience. It's kind of the off season where, you know, another two months we'll be hiring more for summertime. Winter was just over. And I'm like, well, I don't got two months, you know, $200 is not lasting very long. We were staying at the Y at the time. And so anyhow, so I was sitting in this restaurant called Smitty's, which is our equivalent to uh, IHOP and having a coffee and a piece of cheesecake, you know, feeling sorry for myself. Right, right. And the server came over. His name was Lance. I'll never forget him. And we started talking. He says, you know, and Banff's a very small town, very transient, but small. And he said to me, he says, you know, you must be new. I've never met you and kind of noticed I was new. Sure. And I said, yeah, I just got into town. I think I'd been there about four or five days now. And he said, well, where are you working? And I said, well, I'm not. I can't find a job. 
And he said, what are you looking to do? I said, I just want to wash dishes, you know, and just want to get my foot in the door and do some dishes and have fun in Banff. So he said, I think we're looking for a dishwasher. I'm like, oh, great. He says, so I'll be right back. And a lady by the name of Faye came out and she was the manager of the restaurant and she sat down with me and had a cup of coffee with me and we just talked about kind of everything and kind of what I was looking to do. And she said, I'll hire you. I'm like, wow, great. She says, when can you start? I said, when do you need me? He says, I actually need you tonight. And I think this was probably around one or two in the afternoon. Right. I said, well, what time do you want me here? She says, four o'clock. So I'll run home and change. What do I wear? She says, wear something comfortable, some comfortable shoes. That you don't mind getting yeah, wet Yeah, you don't mind dirty. getting wet and dirty. And <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'll be back at four. And that's kind of how it started. It was never something I kind of dreamed of doing or had this vision of I'm going to be this chef. I'm going to run multiple restaurants. It was more of I needed a job. Um, and once I got into it, um, it was the people, you know, like I got to work that night and I think they had been short a dishwasher for a while, if I remember correctly. So the cooks were so happy that there was a dishwasher there. Right. They just treated me like gold. Like I was like, which is walked on. Not always the case. Not always the case. And I, and I, and so since then I, I've always really like made sure my guys and girls treated dishwashers with so much respect because it is such an important part of our, Oh, for sure. But I was like, wow, this is great. They were feeding me. You know, the servers were bringing me Cokes and sodas to drink, and I'm eating all this food. I'm thinking, wow, this is amazing. I, this, I love this job. Um, and I think that went on for a few months. You know, I think it was probably about three or four months um, that I washed dishes for. And then they came to me and said, you know, we need a, we need a toast cook because it was a very busy breakfast place. And there was a cook that just cooked toast for eight hours. That's how much toast we went through. And I'm like, sure, I don't have to dishwash anymore. I'll get a little raise. Why not? So I went up to Toast Cook, and and it just kind of happened from there. So, But what I loved about it was the people, you know, especially there. It was all transient. So they worked all over the world. You know, they kind of followed the ski seasons or the summer seasons, and they were kind of in Canada and this time of year, or maybe New Zealand, Australia, or South America and other parts of the year. And they just had such amazing stories. And I was so young, you know, 17 at the time, that, I was just like, wow, this is the most incredible people I've ever met. They all had such a great story and a great work ethic, and they liked to party. And yeah. that's what we did. You know, we were living in Banff, and, you know, and drinking age was 18 in Alberta. So it was, I could drink, you know, almost legally. Right. Um, but it was just, we just had fun. And it was just, I don't know, it was just something about the bond and the kind of relationships that kind of happened in the restaurant. Well, I mean, you're an athlete, right? So, I mean, it's very synonymous to an athletic type of like a team you know because if you remove certain pieces on a team it's just not going to work you know if you remove the goalie in hockey you're kind of screwed yeah you're in trouble so if you remove the dishwasher (laughs) yeah absolutely you know so there's certainly those parallels there which is probably maybe subconsciously why you gravitated i think it was you know and 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 it really was you're right the teamwork that went into and I, i think a lot of you know, individuals that aren't connected to what we do, they don't understand the importance of, you know, everyone has a mission sure. know, in a sense. And, and, and I've, I've heard a lot of times like, you know, cooking and kitchens are, are, are like military, you know, kind of hierarchy. And look, and I never, I, what the military does obviously is you know, not what we do, but <laughs> right. in, just in terms of, and that's really the old school brigades when they started, you know, a hundred years ago, classically, you know, classic French brigades, they were set up like a military yeah. you know, brigade was. There was well, it was like the height of your hat, even right. Well, the height, the height of the hat had a big part of it for sure. So there was this hierarchy 
of kind of how the kitchen worked. And, and you had this mission. Your mission was X, and that's what you were responsible for. And, and it was a team coming together. And if you were a part of that puzzle that wasn't working, you know, well, the whole kitchen failed, you know, and, and you had to make sure that you were really responsible for that. And I don't know, I just, it, 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 it really like changed me, you know, we had to, and then we finally rented a place and now we were paying bills, setting up cable, like all these like, adult things that we had to do. And it was kind of like, wow, this is pretty amazing. And then to get that paycheck every couple of weeks, I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. And so even at that point, it was still not a plan of, okay, this is it. I'm going to be this famous chef or I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Um, but really I wanted to do more was travel, you know, just hearing all these stories and all these amazing places around the world that I could go to. And, you know, there was always a job for someone in hospitality. And so that's kind of how the path started. And I ended up in Australia for a year. And I just, I really backpacked, I cooked, I washed dishes. Hey, were up. you in Sydney or down in Melbourne? Uh, I flew into Sydney and then I went up the East Coast, kind of up north and then swung around to Perth and then kind of, I didn't do any of the South, but I covered a lot of ground and it was all doing hospitality stuff and it kind of paid my way through. I went there with next to nothing, um, but I got a work permit, you know, a temporary work permit and away we went. And when I, that was down, I got back to Canada and, and I was like, oh, what am I going to do now? And, you know, Smitty's was looking for a, a cook in my hometown. I was back in Victoria. So I applied there, got it, you know, and away we went. And then my dad came home one day and he said, hey, look, you know, what are you going to do with this? You know, is this something you want to do the rest of your life? And I'm like, yeah, I really like it, but I don't really know. The path. You know, yeah, what the path is or what even, you know, what, what it means. You know, I wasn't really had any idea what that was. And he said to me, well, there's this, you know, little boutique hotel. It was like uh, Oak Bay Beach Hotel, it was called. And there was a very, quite a well-known Canadian chef that worked, was the chef there. And they were looking for a dishwasher. So I, I went on over and I applied for the dishwashing job. And he looked at, you know, I had this little dinky resume done up. There wasn't much going on. And he said, he says, why do you want to be a dishwasher? I said, well, to be honest with you, I saw that you, my dad pointed out that you were looking and I just want to get into a place that's more professional and see where it takes me. And he said, well, I have a breakfast cook position available if you'd want that instead. I'm like, well, yeah, I crush breakfast. This, yeah, I'm, I'm, I can do this. So he hired me on as a breakfast cook and, th and it was a very professional kitchen. You know, the chefs were professional. They did cooking competitions. There was a hierarchy, <coughs> excuse me. You know, rest, we were doing recipes from scratch. We're at Smitty's, you know, it was packaged, add water. So it just, it started to change my life. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is next level again. Like all of a sudden I felt like I just took this big step and I ended up signing on an apprenticeship. And it was a th at the time it was a three year apprenticeship that you signed on. Uh, you worked 10 months in the kitchen and then you went to school for two months. So, and to, to move on, you had to pass a provincial exam and then a federal, uh, you know, national exam to kind of go. And the no, chef, that's like a Canadian yeah, equivalent can, yeah, to Canadian, like, so states, not chef school, and, but well, yeah, it, it was in a sense like a Johnson and like, Wales kind of deal. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it was a, a trade school almost. Sure. Okay. Um, so, but what it was, it's not, it's not even exist anymore. It was a government sponsored program. So what happened when you were in school for the two months, the, the employer agreed to pay 50% of your wage and then the government paid the other 50%. So you got to go to school and you still made your wage. Um, that's amazing. Unfortunately, it's not there anymore. Um, but you, at the end, you got a trade certificate, you know, trade certified that you completed this three year apprenticeship in cooking. 
Um, but I liked a lot about it was it was really hands-on, obviously 10 months a year. And then the two months you got to learn a lot of the practical theory, um, recipe development, costing, um, those type of things, you know, the classics of cooking. Um, but so you get the best of both worlds. Um, and I was really lucky that, you know, the chefs I worked for always kind of pointed me in the next direction. And once I was on my apprenticeship, that chef said to me, says, okay, you're done with me now. Go work for this guy. And off I went, you know, and he called for me and said, Hey, so it was, and, and I, as I was going and obviously learning and growing and I really, at that point now was really starting to think, okay, this is something that I'm going to do the rest of my life. I, I felt it. I knew it. Um, and not that because I was this ultra talented chef naturally, I, I, I worked harder than everybody was one of my strengths, but still it was the people it, the people just kept drawing me back to kind of, you know, what we did. And I worked for the chef who was from England. You know, he had immigrated over to Canada, you know, he'd been there only about three or four years by the time I was working with him. And he had the most amazing stories about working in these kitchens, you know, in England. Well, the British have such a way with language, yeah, too. Yeah, and it was, I mean, I was mesmerized. We'd sit down at family meal every day, and he would just tell stories. And I was just, like, so mesmerized. by. And I said, i got to be a part of this. I need to get there, you know, because we didn't really have that in Canada. You know, cooking really wasn't, uh, you know, a well-thought-out or a, uh, a highly-thought trade. There was no Food Network at the time. There was no celebrity chefs, per se, especially in North America, really. There was a few, but not many. Um, anyhow, so I convinced them to send me over to England. And I said, I want to go work there. Um, and I ended up spending five years in England. No and, kidding. Yeah, and I worked for two, at the time, top two of the top chefs in the world. And where were you in England? Uh, Marco Pierre White. Um, so he was the youngest, at the time, youngest chef ever to win three Michelin stars. Oh, wow. And then another gentleman named Raymond Blanc, uh, who had a place just outside of Oxford, of uh, two Michelin stars. Um, and it was the most life-changing moment for me, not only professionally, but personally. Um, just because of what cooking meant there was so different than what it meant here. I mean, I, I was part of, like, Raymond Blanc was, and Marco were celebrities. They were, they were big names. Like, they were in, you know, the rag mags. You know, they were, their names were people gossiped about them. Like you knew they had, it was crazy. Um, well, and then even the environment, I'm sure it was like that next rung, right? Where it was like, you got your pre-mix add water. Then you got the cooking from scratch. Then you got Michelin star status. Yeah, it, it was insane. And, and the pressures of knowing that a Michelin inspector could be in your restaurant at any given night, you just, you could not mess up. Right. You know, it, it, that pressure of knowing Hey, look, you know, if, if, if a Michelin inspector comes in or a reviewer from one of the, you know, the papers or the magazine, whatever it might be, you, if your dish was named in a, in a way that wasn't liked, like you may have lose, you lost your job. Yeah. You're not coming back to work the next day. And so, you know, people didn't, the chefs really didn't fire people. People fired themselves. They just really did because either they could do it or they couldn't. And again, I thought I worked hard. I, well, I knew I worked hard. I thought I knew a lot, you know, in my small world of where I'd cooked. And when I got there and I didn't know a thing, you know, and I had to relearn a lot of ways, um, just on how things worked. You know, we worked 16, 17, 18 hours a day, you know, six days a week. And, um, but it was just, I don't know. I loved it. Like I really liked, wow. I just loved the whole feel of this excitement and how people talked about food and the the pressures of michelin and the pressures of being the best and it just 
I really thrived, you know, and, and I did well. I did really well with that, with those two chefs. And, and it kind of cemented me, you know, kind of really when I came back to Canada after that to kind of just say, yeah, this is for sure 100% what I'll do the rest of my life. That's awesome. Yeah, it was well, pretty you, special. You said earlier that, like, you convinced him to allow you to go to England. What did, what did you say? Um, well, I, I went to him and I said, hey, look, I need to go work in England. And I, I'd, I'd been working for him maybe about four or five months. At that Did he point. look at you like you were crazy? Totally looked at me like I was nuts. And then he said, look, the only way you're going to go there is if you work for me for two years and you have to work and I'm going to push you like you're going to get pushed there. Sure. Um, and he did. And I responded well. And that's why then he kind of started gaining confidence that I could do this. So you had to sort of prove how prove trustworthy myself. you yeah, are. Because if he was going to put his name on the line you know, and, and call someone that he worked for. He wanted to make sure that I was not going to show up. And then three weeks later, like walk out or not come back to work because it was a common thing um, that would happen that people would start and they just did not last because um, it was intense. It really, truly was. And, and but to me, I, I don't know, I, I really I thrived in it. I enjoyed it. Um, and I was lucky there was no physical abuse. And, you know, there's a lot of horror stories that you hear back in them times. Um, but I would think I was a little bit near the end of, of that. You know, I was kind of in, I'm kind of that bridge of when things really started to change. You know, I was kind of at the end of a lot of the abuse and the long hours and kind of, you know, the start of the celebrity chef. You know, I'm kind of in that middle generation, I think. And so I was never, you know, I got a couple of smacks in the back of the head, you know, for not like, you know, mom would if you did something bad. But well, I've always you know, heard of yelling. I didn't, I didn't realize that people were getting physical or like throwing oh, things at you, yeah. but never hitting you. But like there was they would actually like thrown. hit you in the back of the head. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and if you you had to keep two feet on the ground and, you know, sometimes you kind of lean that one foot up against or your foot up, you know, just when you're kind of, you know, they would kick your legs out from underneath you and not make you not let you stand up. You know, but the problem with all that was wasn't even the kicking your legs out and laying on the ground is that just the clock was kick, clicking and you couldn't get your mise en place, your prep done for lunch service. And that's all you could think about. Right. Because that was, you know, even worse, not having your your stuff ready for service. So there was that. Um, but, you know, I'd heard a lot more worse stories than that from people I'd work with, you know, and I think what drove me probably more than anything, I think there was a sense that. I knew I could leave any time. You know, once I hit that year mark, because that was my original goal was one year, and I ended up spending five years there. Once I hit that year, I'd kind of done what I, I went set to do, but I loved it so much I stayed. And But I would look around and kind of see that, wow, this is a really tough lifestyle for, for people. You know, it, it was just where's the end, you know, for, for people living there. Where I always had an out because... I could go back home. Yeah, your goal was accomplished. Yeah, it was accomplished. So I think that kind of helped me kind of get through a lot of it. Um, but now, it were you all, promoted at all during that first year? Uh, the or first, was it just literally like a calendar goal? No, it was a calendar goal was the first. I ended up, was promoted over time um, up until just below really a sous chef. I ended up being a lead after so much time. And so it was, it was more the calendar goal was mine. And then... Whatever happened after that was just kind of, you know, the icing on the cake, so to speak. So, I mean, the interesting thing I think about restaurants is that there really doesn't seem to be one way to become an accomplished chef, really. I mean, granted, like, let's say you come from a ton of money. You could just open a restaurant, right? But 
is there such thing as a traditional ladder, so to speak, within the business? Um, I think there was more so 20 years ago. I think now, since Food Network um, and cooking shows, um, it's changed a lot. And and I had this, you know, I have a lot of friends that have never worked in a restaurant that are considered chefs or celebrity celebrity chefs now. So I think there's so many. Um, um, more avenues now for people to go to be a chef, you know? So I really think the word chef is very different now than what it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. So like if somebody started as a dishwasher in one of your restaurants today, what does that path look like? Or does it come down to what their aspirations are? I think it's a bit of both. I really do. You know, I think that there is some aspirations that have to be there. Um, we have dishwashers at Ironside, for example, that we've been open five and a half years and they've been dishwashing there for five and a half years. They're very happy with it. They know their schedule. They know exactly what they're going to do and away they go. Um, we've had dishwashers that we hired during the opening, you know, five and a half years ago that now run their own bars. They'd never worked in a kitchen before, worked in a restaurant before, and we hired them as a dishwasher and they kind of worked their way up in the kitchen a little bit. And they said, look, I really want to go to front of house. Then we would promote them to bar back and then they bartend and now they're running a bar. That's awesome. So it, I think a lot of it is definitely aspiration. Um, but in reality, it, it's there's, you know, there's kind of a path of because everyone picks up different speeds as well. You know, and everyone learns at different speeds. Everyone, you know, um, some people want to work days and you can be a very accomplished chef. You know, look, we can have, we have some very good cooks in our company that just want to work days. So that's an option. You know, the, the challenge, what ends up happening, obviously, is there's a lot of cooks, but as you get higher up the ranks, there's less of those positions. To right. Fill. That's, it's and just that's like retail. Biggest. Exactly. You know, managers, regional managers. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's a, I think it's a combination of both, but I think aspiration, it obviously, is the biggest one if someone even wants it. Sure. Right. Now, we were speaking a little bit off mic. You moved to San Diego in 07. Or you moved to 07. the States in 07. Yes. Uh, States in 07. So okay. San Diego. I'd done some time in Miami. Um, I used to work with Four Seasons Hotels, so I was single when I worked for them. So I was like a prime candidate to go help open properties. Now those um, are all franchised, right? No, it's one. It's one owner. Um, it went public. Um, sorry, I shouldn't say that. The company is a management company, Four Seasons, and then the hotels are owned by individuals. Right. And then you're right. They buy okay you know, um, the name. Um, but the founder of the company was a Canadian gentleman. Um, and I worked for four seasons for about five years, I guess it was. And I was lucky I was in Toronto, which was, uh, the home office, uh, property. And I was single and could go at the drop of a hat if they needed help opening other properties. So I got to go to Costa Rica, the Bahamas, Whistler, Miami, South of France, and be a part of all those opening teams. Um, Incredible. It was just amazing. Well, going back to what you said, you wanted to travel. Yeah. And I got to do it. So, and then my so last. So you started with them in what year? Um, 2000. So was that right after England? No, I was about three years after I got back from England. Okay. Yeah, I, I went back to Whistler um, first, and then it was about three years after I got back uh, from England, I joined Four Seasons Hotels. And I was with them for about five years, and then I end up, uh, Bahamas was my last property with them. And I was kind of done with Four Seasons. It was just, eh, it just wasn't for me anymore. And a, a lady that I had worked with, um, she was in the HR department, 
Uh, I had worked with her at two different properties in four se- in four seasons. She got a job here in San Diego at the Grand Omar Hotel as the HR director. And she called me in the Bahamas and said, hey, look, I know you're unhappy with Four Seasons. You should come check this job. We're looking for an executive chef. And that was a five-star restaurant, right? Uh, a hotel. So Addison is was there. Yeah, I mean, um, sorry, the restaurant. Yeah, the restaurant. The yeah, so Addison opened up a year before the hotel did. Um, it was They opened it in the golf because it was a golf course originally, and then right. the hotel was built afterwards. So Addison was already open. William Bradley was the chef, amazing chef in San Diego, incredible restaurant. Um, so they needed someone to open the hotel for them, the, the hotel restaurants, F&B. So I flew out from the Bahamas and did the interview process and fell in love with San Diego and the property. And it was an amazing opportunity to kind of open up this grand hotel with multiple restaurants and golf course. And you know, we had five different kitchens and all types of good stuff. And that's how I got to San Diego um, uh, on a work visa originally. And I met my wife there, my now wife. Um, she was working there? She was working there as well. She was part of the opening team. Um, and we opened the hotel. I got there in June of 07. Um, and we opened the hotel in October of 07. And we were there for a couple of years and loved it. Amazing, incredible experience. Um, but after a couple of years, I got this uh, opportunity to go to Chicago and open a, an, another hotel that was privately owned. Um and what the vision was for that hotel, I was like, oh, I need to be a part of that. And I wanted to cook in Chicago. You know, to me, Chicago is one of those great food cities of the world. And I was, I thought it would be a really great challenge for me personally to, to see if I could do well there. And I was there for two years. Incredible experience. We won two Michelin stars at the, one of the restaurants in the hotel. No way. That's awesome. And, yeah, it was pretty amazing. And um, I just met some incredible people that to this day are some of my closest friends. Is that still in existence? The hotel's still there. Uh, the hotel's sold. Um, it's now run by Waldorf Astoria. Okay. Both the restaurants are closed now, um, and they opened up another restaurant. I can't remember what it's called now, but they kind of changed the food and beverage concept. But it was a beautiful luxury hotel called the Elysian Hotel. Um, but my two years there was really like, it was so impactful for me career-wise at that part of my life that I was, you know, I was an executive chef, you know, a little bit older, um, you know, kind of doing well in my career. And then to be in this city where there was just these amazing, talented chefs, you know, we had Alinea with Grant Ackett's, you know, one of the top chefs in the world, <coughs> excuse me, top restaurants in the world. So many great things happening in that city. And to be a part of that for a couple of years was really special. And what was really special to me was, the chefs were so warm and welcoming to the city. Like the, I was an outsider, you know, coming into their city, and they were so welcoming. Every event we did, you know, if they let's say they had a cook, you know, that was ready to move on, they would call and say, "Hey, I hear you're looking for somebody. I got this person. You should." Hire. I mean, it was just such a warm, um, uh, tight knit group of individuals that it, it meant so much to me, and it kind of really like made me feel special you know in a lot of ways that i just couldn't get anywhere else i felt so what type of cuisine was that so at ria we we had two restaurants we had ria which is this uh, restaurant we went to michelin stars at it was a seafood restaurant tiny only 50 seats oh wow um, only open for dinner and then we had another restaurant called balsan b-a-l-s-a-n and that was like a french bistro Um, we had one kitchen that we cooked both restaurants out of so it was pretty crazy you know, at times you're cooking two different full menus and completely one was a very, you know, 
classic French bistro and one was super high end, two Michelin starred. Uh, but the team we had was incredible that we worked with. They must have been on. like quite a dance in the back. It, it was crazy. Yeah, we were. It was. It was. It was really amazing to kind of to put this stuff out, you know, in this, and it really wasn't that big of a kitchen either. It was a pretty small kitchen, but the talent we had in that kitchen was by far the best talent I've ever worked with in one area. Um, I, the, the sous chef team and the pastry team, chef de cuisine, every one of them have gone on to do really special things. You know, it's like, it's like stars. a band, you know, like to be able to form those people in that environment that all have a similar work ethic and vision and all the rest of that. It's like, you think of the best bands in the world. You're like, how did John Bonham just happen to meet, you know, Robert Plant and, you know, Jimmy Page? You know, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, absolutely. It's, just... it's, it's crazy. And, and one thing that I, uh, you know, my chef that sent me to England, you know, that he gave me this advice, you know, and he said, look, one day you're going to go on to be a chef of your own. You're going to hire your own people. He says, if I can give you anything that you ever learn from me is hire people better than you. And I think that was one thing that just stuck with me. You know, you got to take that ego out of the equation and look for people that bring something you don't have. And, and I think that that was where we did it best. And every one of those um, players and of that band that we had in Chicago have gone on to do some really special things, you know, now that the restaurant's gone. And it's just so incredible to watch and see that and think oh, we really had some serious talent in that one spot. Um, it was pretty special time and, and it was hard to leave Chicago. It really was, you know, we, we finished up there and my wife and I were like, well, what are we going to do now? We weren't sure. And we loaded up the car, you know, we were fortunate. We didn't have bills. We didn't have a mortgage and we don't have children. So we had some flexibility. Um, both our families are West. My wife's family's in Oregon. So we were kind of driving that way, trying to figure out what we were going to do. And she got a call from a former boss at Hyatt in San Diego and said, Hey, look, we heard you're driving across the country. We want to bring you back to work. So I think we were in Iowa or something like in the motel. Like literally in like, a, yeah, like driving, literally across, driving across. Yeah. And she said, what do you think? I said, let's do it. I like San Diego. I didn't get enough time there. And I think it's, you know, the potential for San Diego is endless, you know, so let's give it a go. And, but one of my goals was to, to open my own place was the ultimate goal. I didn't want to go back working for somebody. I really wanted to find that path. And we were lucky enough that she could go back to work and I could, you know, have some flexibility. And I did a couple odd catering jobs and consulting jobs and so on and so on. And, and, um, by chance one night I got sad. I went to a beer dinner. It was, I think it was green flash. Or I can't remember at La Valencia hotel. And I got sat with Nate Stanton, um, who was one of the original partners of CH Projects, Consortium Holdings. And, you know, we exchanged business cards and got talking. And, you know, and about, I don't know, maybe a month later, three, four, excuse me, three, four weeks later, uh, he gave me a call and said, hey, look, I'd like you to meet my business partner and come have dinner with us. So we actually had dinner at Devante's here in Little Italy. Sure. And um, I the met Focaccia our son. Yeah. With the oh, honey. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely amazing. And I had known... Devante from Chicago, um, you know, the founder there. So it was kind of a, a familiar spot to it. All worked out well. And, you know, we got talking, the three of us, and kind of like just started talking a little bit about our goals. And at that time, CH was um, Eldorado, Noble, Neighborhood, and Craft and Commerce. And Underbelly Little Illy was just about to open. 
they were bar guys, you know, that kind of made their mark in the bar scene and, and done some really great stuff and really pushed the envelope for San Diego. And they were, you know, feeling out chefs if this was something they wanted to kind of grow and do and kind of see because they didn't really know a lot about the kitchens and, you know, and they only had neighborhood and craft at the time and two small menus and very specific bar food. And craft was great. Too. I mean, it was one of the few bars that would offer bone marrow. I know. It was great, right? You know, that, that original craft was a special place for I, sure. I agree. It really was. So, yeah, so we, I like to say we dated probably for... I don't know, maybe two or three months, four months, you know, kind of got to know each other. And, and then one day they said, Hey, look, what if you came on for like a 90 day contract and just kind of see if we got along and see how you work, you see how we work and we might hate each other. And then there's no pressure to kind of, you know, we just go for it. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So we did that signed on for a 90 day kind of consultant contract. And, um, and I spent my time at craft, uh, underbelly was open by that point, a couple months. Um, but I spent most of my time at craft and kind of got the feel of the, the way it was. And what most people don't know after about two months, um, I took Nate and Arslan for lunch and said, yeah, this is probably not working out. You know, you guys are not ready for me and, and I'm, you know, want something different than what you guys have to offer. And it wasn't because of anything bad. It was just timing at that point. Um, it just, they were a little nervous about changing menus because they'd had such great success. Um, and they really didn't have any plans to grow much anything else at that point. So if it ain't broke. Exactly. And I, and I really didn't want to be the, the person to come in there and start changing menus. Try and, to break it. <laughs> try to break it. <laughs> yeah. And, then, you know, I was working at this craft restaurant that, you know, was lined up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It didn't matter. It was lined up. Yeah. And, and it was one of the most amazing things I'd been a part of because I really didn't know a lot about a bar or cocktail programs or, you know, and to watch these bartenders there, I was just so mesmerized by what they did. I was really, and this is like peak craft cocktails sort of like, or I guess the birth of the birth of right at the beginning. And so, so we had this lunch and they, and I said, look, I'll, I'll get a chef for craft because we didn't have a chef at that time uh, for craft. I said, look, I'll get them up and running, get them trained. And then after 90 days, we'll just do our thing. It was very amicable. We all agreed. Okay, cool. Yeah, maybe one day down the road, we'll see what happens. Um, as that time was coming to an end, Arslan came to me and said, hey, look, you know, I know you're leaving. What, have you found anything yet? I said, no, nah, not really, because I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. He says, well, look, I just signed this project, this lease, which is now Plite and Soda and Swine North Park. And he says, look, I'm doing this two concepts in one, and I really don't know what to do with the food. I want to do this meatball shop and I need somebody to open it for me. Can I hire you separately as a separate contract just to do soda and swine? That's awesome. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Why not? Right. And it was a great opening. We had some great success and we never, ever had a conversation again about me leaving. And eight years later, I'm still here. That's amazing. It's a true story. Like I really just continued on. And once that happened and then Ironside happened and the rest is history. But yeah, we really were like, had this out plan that, it just never happened. And, and it really was at that point that I really realized that, wow, this is a pretty special group. And, and, and Arslan has a vision and a goal to, to really do something exceptional in San Diego. I feel like polite. Well, I guess craft first, and then maybe polite for sure. Kind of was the inception sort of, of the, the aesthetic of CH, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. With the brass and the sort of, yeah, Art the vision deco. and the Art Deco yeah. and how it all came together. And and so we, we got that open, and, and it was crazy, crazy, crazy. I mean, it was just it, it, the 
to see people line up for a new opening was just like mind blowing to me. You know, it really was. And look, I'd seen craft, but it was already open by the time I got there and it was busy like every night, but to open it and see the people come and, and, you know, go through those challenges of opening a restaurant where uh, we didn't know what we were doing. What was going to happen? We were just going for it. And, um, it was pretty special. And, and, you know, I, I just really felt that after that, I, it changed my mind. I'm like, yeah, you know what? This is something I need to be a part of. I really did. Yeah. And we did that. And then I think it was about six months after that, we ended up in Portland. Our, our son said to me, hey, look, do you want to go to Portland for bartenders week? I'm like, why do I want to? I don't want to go to bartenders week. You know, like, I, I'm not, what am I going to do at bartenders week? I'm a chef. He says, I just come. It's a really fun time. There's a few restaurants I want to check out while we're in Portland. And, you know, you can hang out. And you don't Where'd you go? go? Do you remember? The restaurants? Oh, God, there's so many. I don't oh, okay. really remember, to so be you were all over you. the place. Yeah, we were everywhere. Um, but, yeah, it was crazy. And so, anyhow, I went with him, and, and we were staying at the Ace Hotel. And I can't remember the restaurant that was in the Ace Hotel. I can't remember the name of it. But, you know, we were having breakfast in there. I think it was, like, our second or third day. And that's where Ironside popped up. Uh, he said he had an opportunity to take over the space, which is now Ironside, and said, hey, look, do you want to partner with me? And that was my really my first official financial partnership into CH. Okay, so that was like a stake that in the business. That was a stake in the business. And, um, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm in. Like, whatever we're going to do, I'm in. Let's do this. And we really didn't have, at that point, a vision. We kind of talked a few different things about what we were going to do and um, but it was still obviously very early. The lease wasn't even signed yet. He was still working on the deals and all that kind of stuff. But that's kind of where Ironside happened was we were in Portland and he said, Hey, look, you know, I'm happy with, you know, kind of what you do with soda. We like having you part of the team. We want to keep growing this relationship. And we know that that's what you're looking for. You know, let's do this. And I'm like, I'm all in. Let's so the idea it. was all just seafood driven or it was, it was, um, it was interesting. It was because Ironside is primary for those who don't know yeah. is all seafood primarily seafood. And, and we never, we knew about, uh, San Diego's history with, with fishing, you know, the huge fishing community, uh, back in the day, Bumblebee, you know, fisheries was here, the tuna fishing capital of the world. We had known vaguely about these stories, but we really didn't know, you know, I didn't even know Little Italy was where all the Italian fishermen, you know, immigrated. That's where they landed. You know, Little Italy was really a big fishing little area. Um, so I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. And once we kind of started diving deep into what this concept was going to be, we started learning all this. And we're like, yeah, we got to do seafood in Little Italy. It just makes sense. You know, we didn't want to do an Italian restaurant. There's enough Italian restaurants. So we said, how do we connect to Little Italy, you know, but doing our, our doing it our way? And seafood just kept coming up and away we went and and after i think we were open about four or five months uh that summer uh tuna harbor dockside market opened up the fishing market on saturday mornings opened and i started to meet the fishermen and tell them what we were doing and they said what they were doing and we just built this relationship and we just started buying fish from local fishermen and it just turned out to this amazing relationship that to me became the heart and soul of Ironside was the fishermen. Now, are you guys doing such volume now where they pretty much just fish for you? No, they don't because um, it's kind of monopolistic. It is. And there's, you know, there's some politics that go and get involved. And, and, and my goal was never to upset or I just know, know how busy that restaurant is. That's why I'm very fortunate. <laughs> yeah, we really are. And but, you know, th there's a lot of challenges that, you know, look, if, if one of our fishermen who fishes swordfish, well, if they catch 
you know, 10, you know, a lot of the boats that we use are, are overnight boats or day boats. So they don't go out very often, very long. You know, a lot of them go out at 5, 3 in the morning and they're dropping fish off at Ironside at, at 12.30 in the afternoon. There are a few boats that go out, you know, two, three, four nights at a time, like the swordfish boats, the tuna boats. But if, so if one of our fishermen catches, let's say, 10 swordfish, you know, 180, 200 pounds, we can't use that up. That's too much. We could take one or two of those and we'd be good. So they have to still sell to, you know, a Santa Monica Seafood or Canalita Offshore. Well, you know, what was happening was, you know, Ironside was big enough and we had enough power that, well, a lot of other chefs wanted to buy this fish as well. And it was kind of upsetting some of the, the seafood suppliers. Or the pricing or both. Both. And so what I did is I just went to the suppliers and, I, and the fishermen would tell me, like, look, they're threatened to, you know, not buy from us anymore. I'm like, look, I don't want that. That's not the, my goal, right? So we just we made a deal with the, some of the fish suppliers that said, hey, look, I just want to make sure I'm getting Kelly's swordfish. How do I do that? You know, and if you have to if I have to pay two dollars more a pound or a dollar more a pound, then I will do whatever it takes. You know, I just don't want the fishermen to be hurt. You know, through our relationship, yeah, I want it's that relationships. relationship still. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we worked it out, and there's you know, it's there's always the battle of politics and anything we do. Um, but the fishermen really became the heart and soul of Ironside. They really did. And, you know, we never planned it this way, but there's no back door to Ironside. So anything that comes into that restaurant has to go through the front door. And when you see a fisherman bring in a 200-pound swordfish into the restaurant in the middle of lunchtime, it, it turns heads, you know. And it became this amazing marketing tool that we never, ever thought about when we opened. You know, That's incredible. It really was. And the trucks, the pickup trucks pull up right front and they're unloading the fish and people walking by and you just, the comments you hear, it's, it's pretty amazing to see. And it just was never planned that way. It just happened organically and it became the best marketing tool we ever could have done. That's awesome. Yeah, pretty wild. This week's episode is brought to you by Passion Fine Jewelry located in Solana Beach, California, where owners Jana and Tim Jackson welcome you into their living room-like store, carrying a wide range of independent watches and variety of fine jewelry. Tim is GIA certified, and they also have a goldsmith in-house as part of their staff. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information, and if you're ever in Southern California, please make it a point to visit the store. You can also find a wealth of information via Tim's blog, independentintime.com. Of course, this is also brought to you by Standard H. Standard-H.com is where you'll find our online shop providing branded merchandise to support the podcast. And if you subscribe to our email list, you'll be one of the many insiders receiving exclusive special offers. Now back to the conversation with Jason. We're going to jump around here yeah, a little bit, but we sort of glazed over it. So what is your current title now? So I'm, or is there one? <laughs> I mean, chef partner is what I usually say. Um, you know, a lot of my role is operations for the most part, uh, specifically back of house, um, kitchens, you know, cooks, dishwashers, all that part of the, in the kitchen. Um, most of my time is spent developing our new concepts. Um, so if we have a new concept coming on, that's kind of where my time really focuses on and then i kind of bounce around you know kind of where needed you know spending time mentorship whatever that might be with the existing spots so how many open spots do you guys have now we have 17 locations 17 so how does that dynamic change going from small business say fewer than five to 17 it has been um probably one of the hardest things we've done and we're at a stage now where you know, we never thought it was going to get to be this. Like, we never did. 
And we're kind of at that point now of like, wow, is the company outgrowing our capabilities, our experience? Um, and so we're, you know, we, we work with a couple individuals that really help us, you know, um, more consultant base that kind of help us make sure we're going in the right direction. Now, are they more business consultant or are they restaurant consultant? Um, actually both, you know, um, one is specifically restaurant and one's more business. Um, That's a good and combination. Just, it is. <laughs> and, and, and for us, it's because like, look, we're just these guys that didn't really have a plan. You know, it never, when Arslan opened neighborhood, you know, 14 years ago, 13 years ago now, I mean, he struggled so bad the first six months that he never thought that place was going to last. And now, to and have, he's not an accountant. No, not at all. So, you know, he was taking out credit cards, you know, to just swipe, to pay staff, to pay vendors, to keep it going. And, you know, he was serving craft beer. He didn't have Budweiser, Stella, all these things that people wanted, you know, especially if they're going to the ball game two blocks away. And people would come in and say, oh, can I get a Bud? He says, well, I don't have Bud. He says, well, how can you be a beer bar if you guys don't have Budweiser? So he was a little bit ahead of his time in the whole craft brewery situation as well. So, you know, that that struggle was real. It really was. So to kind of get to where we are now, we didn't have a plan for that. You know, we never sat down and said, okay, this is what 10 years looks like to us. It just has been happening somewhat organically. Um, but it also, you start to like, question your own skill set you know because it is we're a big company now we have six over 600 employees um this by this time next year we'll probably be closer to 850 employees we'll be up over around 20 21 spots uh with some of the new projects we got going on it's pretty daunting that's huge yeah it's crazy so just real quick, if you could rifle off just some of the cuisines you guys offer, like what are some of the types of experiences? So we have a get? steakhouse with born and raised seafood at Ironside Fish and Oyster. We do meatballs at Soda and Swine. Uh, Underbelly is our ramen shop. We have two of those. Uh, Craft and Commerce, I would probably call a little bit more American. Um, we kind of cover a bit of everything there. A neighborhood was a burger whiskey beer bar that's being remodeled right now. Um, Jay and Tony's, we just opened, which is a Negroni bar that kind of serves sandwich deli, like Italian sandwiches and meat boards. Um, we've got a coffee shop now that we just opened in our office. Uh, I think that's everything. And then we have the bars, you know, that kind of cover a lot of ground there as well. Talking to my wife recently, we were talking about Consortium and you just, you guys just have a knack for being edgy but not so much in like a kitschy way. It's, it's more in like the verbiage, like the board right behind the oysters and things like that. There's very a tongue in cheek whimsical, but it's got an edge to it. You know, Ironside ain't nothing to shuck with, you know, Wu Tang. Yeah. Where does that come from? So I think it's a lot of what we looked at is we, through our youth or our kind of growing or our growth, there's a lot of things that influenced us and um, I'm the oldest of the partners, you know, by 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So their, that gener their generation, like what they went through is a lot different than what I went through. So I I think when we first started out, not me per se, because I am anything but a hipster, you know, we were tagged as pretty serious hipsters, you know, and and I think that was part of where the edge kind of came from a little bit with that hipster attitude that started and it kind of just carried with us. And Wu-Tang was, for example, was a big part of Arslan's growing up. It had a big influence on him when he was growing up. 
Um, Where is he from? He actually grew up in San Diego. Oh, in yeah, San Diego. Born raised in La Jolla. Not Staten yeah. Island. No. <laughs> and so it had a big impact on him. And, and he always, for him, um, you know, he, he never set out to be a designer or anything like that. But he designs all our places. Uh, it's his vision. It's his eyes. It's his goal. He brings it together. Now, do you guys work with a particular architect each time? Or? Uh, we, do, we work with, you know, Basil Studios, um, who, who fabricates Arslan's vision. And we have a construction company that helps with the build-outs. But it's Arslan's vision to the T where he challenges anyone we work with. When they say, no, I can't do that, they're like, yeah, you can. We'll figure it out. And that's why we've been able to build some of the places we build and do things kind of the way we do. And I think the tongue-in-cheek part of it came is that we really didn't want to take ourselves too seriously. You know, it's it, it's it's a... We wanted to have that playfulness to it. Um, but it, I'll be honest, it, it's interesting you brought it up because we talk a lot about this now in our owner meetings is that we've gotten so big now, you know, in terms of how many employees we have that sometimes that message gets lost a little bit. It was a lot easier when it was just four or five places. We had 100 employees and we knew every single person in our group um, because a lot of it, it does get misconceived sometimes of what we're trying to achieve. Well, it's identity, right? Like you lose your identity as you get bigger, but then you're also the diversifying the actual cuisine. So the environment stereotypically changes based on cuisine as well. Absolutely. You know, a French restaurant's not going to look like an Italian or seafood specific potentially versus an American spot that's got burgers. Absolutely. So I could totally see how that would be sort of. Um, not a hurdle, but uh, it's a, a task. Challenge. It is a task. And it's something that, you know, as we kind of learn or as we start to grow up, I guess, for lack of a better word, or, you know, is, is saying, look, is, is it still cool what we were doing 10 years ago? And, and we try to learn from it, but we don't want to lose that either. You know, we, we, we fight the corporate tag all the time. You know, we don't want to be corporate, you know, we're not corporate, but there is a level of corporate that needs to happen to grow a business. And what we're always trying to challenge ourselves on is how do we do it our way? You know, how do we do it that makes sense for us? You know, we want our places to be, you know, something special for some that's not being done in San Diego. You know, we travel a lot. We see a lot of amazing things. We're very fortunate. And then we think, oh, that would be really great in San Diego. Why have we not done this yet? And that's really where we get a lot of our inspiration from. And look, the bottom line is we all live here. You know, Arslan's from San Diego. I'm not, I, I, but it's home for me. And, and I, I bought my first home here. I met my wife here. Um, you would have to drag me out of San Diego kicking and screaming now. It, it's home to me. Well, I think an easy way to dodge that moniker really of corporate is to continue what you're doing. And that's diversifying kind of your offering. I mean, obviously you could duplicate a la the ramen spots, yep. but... You know, as long as there's not 16 born and raised, you know, like Sullivan's was back in the day. And it's true. And I think and that's for us. Like, and a lot of times when we do something, you'd be, I mean, it's amazing how many people tell us, you guys are crazy. You should never do that. And just speaking. That's of usually when raised, you're onto something cool. Then we know we're doing all right. You know, when we, when we first started talking about born and raised and, you know, people started hearing what we were trying to do there in a climate that was getting more and more expensive to run a business and minimum wages going up and we wanted to add labor and do table side, yeah. you know, in a 10,000 square foot restaurant. We're like, and Beast. people were telling us, no, don't do it. We're like, okay, we're going to do this. And, and we're, it's been amazing. It's again, and, and we want to be challenged ourselves. We don't want to just do the status quo. We want to step outside the box a little bit and kind of do things that, 
haven't been done or we don't really know. And, and it's when we open a place, like we don't really know what we're getting into sometimes and we, and it, I think it challenges us even more to really make sure we're on top of it. So that sort of answers my question that I was going to ask, but not really. So why do you think you guys are so successful at presenting different types of environments like you have? I think a lot of it, we've built up a lot of trust in San Diego now over the years. Um, and we don't, do status quo um i think people at first are curious okay what's this place going to be like um they know that we're going to do something different i think we've kind of built up that reputation a little bit and but to be honest with you you know we struggle the first four or five months of an opening is like wow you know we don't have a lot of money to to have this cash flow that's just sitting there to invest in all the important things like training our staff we need to get the doors open so we can get money coming in we don't have private investors it's all our own money no way uh, yeah no it's just there's four of us especially with a build out like born and raised yeah, or, so or even morning glory yeah so we struggle we when we come to opening times our cash flow t- dries up real fast so we need those doors open but we also know and, and understand and don't disagree that our guests have an expectation once you start paying for something you want it to be what it's worth. But I think we've built up a bit of collateral with our guests that they understand that, you know, we're going to make some mistakes in the beginning, but I I think we've, we've been able to prove ourselves that we'll get it right. And, you know, it usually takes us about four or five months and then you're going to, you know, but so I think we, it's a combination of both. I think people want to see what are they up to? You know, what are they doing now? Um, The aesthetics of the restaurants are pretty amazing. So that gets the people in. And then I think people do have a, a bit of trust for in us that we'll get it right and we're going to do something special if we keep going. Yeah, I think that's true. Going back to more of chef talk, what are some of the common traits that you've seen in your career or even that you potentially possess in a great chef? Um, for me, work ethic is number one, um, definitely. Um, the, you know, it's, it sounds a bit cliche, but the passion. Um, if you don't love this career, then you should not do this career. Um, because yeah, it looks, you know, the celebrity chefs look like this is great. Look at the celebrity chef must be rich and there's going to be a lot of money, but there's so few. It's the 1%. (laughs) Yeah. Chefs that are making a lot of money, you know, um, look, I drive a Prius, you know, people look at me now and they go, my, you're part of a 17 restaurant group. You have six, you must be rolling in money. We hear it all the time, especially opening a place like born and raised, you know, that costs, as much as it did, or even more in glory, like you said, people think automatically you have money. Um, so we're definitely not in it for the money. There are companies that have been very successful, but you know, um, and do make money. There's no question. But the reality is, typically chefs don't make a lot of money. You know, uh, it's a grind daily, and it's getting. What's well, like and architects? A hundred percent. You know, a hundred percent, and it's getting harder and harder to do what we do the rising cost of labor, the rising cost of product. Well, and knowledge, the rising knowledge of the population you're feeding, they can, you know, the discerning person knows a good ingredient from a bad one these days because they started paying attention. So thank you, but no thanks to Food Network. (laughs) Well, totally. And and I say, people ask me all the time what I think about that. And I think, you know what, it's probably the greatest thing. Sure. And it's a curse. Yes. The greatest thing because now... You know, when I was, you know, first started cooking, you throw a bunch of fancy garnishes and big sprigs of rosemary and people thought that was the most amazing thing they ever seen. Well, now guests know that, you know, they know a lot. 
when I talk to some of our guests, like the knowledge they have compared to what they did 20 years ago, I mean, it's mind blowing and it's, it's, it's exciting because they almost, they talk with that same passion that you have as a professional chef. And I, and I do think in one of the hardest things we, you know, most chefs don't take criticism very well. I think what I've learned over time is to kind of listen to the criticism or listen to the feedback and kind of just let it sink in a little bit before I overreact. You know, I was, I work for chefs where, you know, the guest was, you, nothing changed. It didn't matter the allergy you had or, you know, you came to that restaurant, you were getting the dish the way the chef did the dish. If you don't like it, get out. Do you meditate at all? I don't. You don't? Yeah. Well, it's something I've kind of done, I don't know, over the last couple of years. Okay. So much to your point, it's for me, because I'm, I'm pretty quick yeah. to react, be it positive or negative. <laughs> um, it's all about creating that space between the person that says something to you. Create the space before you react so you can really marinate, if you will. Yeah, it's true. And on it, your reaction. It, it, and we are typically, I think, a chef's trait is overreaction. Like you say, good or bad. Um, and I think it is like what I've learned is, you know, especially now with Yelp and all these review sites and everyone's a critic now and, you know, and, and, and Yelp used to beat us up pretty bad. You know, when we'd read bad Yelp reviews, like it really hurt us. But what I've started to learn over time is just kind of read between the lines a little bit, you know, because maybe there is some truth to that Yelp reviewer that, you know, maybe we've seen a pattern of whatever they wrote. And I think that's now a little bit more of the way I look at it is look for patterns, you know, don't overreact, just kind of listen, kind of store that feedback. And then if it comes up again, maybe another guest. So, but I think it, to me, yeah, you got to love this business. And if you don't love it, it's just not the right business because it's not an easy business. Yeah. There's a couple things there. Um, I think one is when it comes to criticism of anything, it's really interesting because if you're feeding the masses, for example, and don't just have like, you know, 10 customers, you have 10,000, the ones that are saying negative things are only the people that are actually opening their mouths about it. Like you never know what the rest of the people are thinking, mm -hmm. but then again, also the positive often isn't shared. So yeah. unfortunately there's like this negative filter. So we have to sort of skirt that issue and be a little more optimistic because it's so much easier to kind of bitch and complain than yeah. it is to be positive sometimes. Yeah, it really is. And I think you're, I think that's a great point where, yeah, we, and we find ourselves doing it in our own, like we do our store meetings every week. You know, every store gets an hour with the ownership group every week, same time, you know, same place, same day. And, but we find ourselves do the same thing. We constantly focus on the negative or the bad, right? Because that's what you want. But there isn't enough talk about, there is some great stuff happening, you know, and we tend to like just focus on that. You're right, because it's the easiest thing or the thing we talk about most. Well, and when you're striving for perfection, you have to correct the bad. The yeah. good's already on already its own. Happening. It's, yeah. it's happening. Absolutely. But my favorite thing that you guys do is the audio inside the bathrooms yeah. of the negative Yelp yeah. reviews. <laughs> yes, that started at Kraft. I think it's been, oh, it had to be at least five years ago now. It's just genius. Yeah. And we, you know, we used to read these Yelp reviews and, you know, and we were, you know, maybe six years ago now even, and we were pretty young still at that point and you know and every time we got a bad yelp review we would be basically like you know that person doesn't know what they're talking about who cares about them that type of attitude a little bit and someone i can't remember it was a staff member i think it was a server that said hey look you know we should do reviews and play them in the bathroom and we're like 
wait a minute, that sounds pretty cool. And then somebody said, and we should do it in the voice we think that the guest would speak in. And it just became this thing. And it was, it really was fun and genius. Yeah, it it really was. And it was again, and I think that's kind of part of where our tongue in cheek comes from a lot is that like, we don't take ourselves too, we're serious, but we don't take ourselves too serious for the most part. And you know, it's a pretty serious business what we do obviously, but at the same time, there is a, there needs to be some fun in hospitality. You know, people come to our restaurants to escape, you know, and we really want to be able to have, give them that opportunity, whether it's an anniversary, a bad day at work, a birthday, a celebration, whatever it might be, just to get away from whatever. Like the idea is the ultimate goal is to create somewhere where people feel safe and warm and welcome to come and hang out. You know, and, and that's a really big piece of what we talk a lot about. What exactly is difficult for you these days? Like, what's the hardest part of your job? Um, time. The You know, one of the main things for me um, when I got into this business, like I said earlier, was the people. I love the people. Um, and as we grow and my position grows with that, I get less and less time with the people. Um, especially during openings, because I'm in an opening the most so we open a new spot i'm there the first four or five months every single day with the employees building that relationship and then all of a sudden i'm gone right and you know and and i've been doing it a long time you know and and built up that respect and enough faith that you know and and then all of a sudden i'm gone the employees are like where did he go can we get him back and i think for me it's probably the hardest thing that I'm trying to figure out is how to like divide my time up that um, I can still be that mentor and have that mentorship and and coach and teach. Cause to me, that's what I got a lot of when I was coming up. I really, I had great mentors and great leaders that just helped me grow. And, and that gets harder and harder every time we open a new place. Cause we just add another layer of, of individuals and another amount to that total of, 600 employees and it's hard that's the hardest thing sure well so did your experience with four seasons help at all because there was that element but or were you just gone because you're gone it, it did but it was even then as let's say my first role with four seasons i was a chef de cuisine of one restaurant so in a, a larger you know we had 100 employees in the kitchen but i was only responsible really for eight of them in my kitchen. I see. And so it was a little bit different. I knew other employees, obviously, because, you know, it was, the kitchens are all connected. But directly, I was with these eight employees day in, day out, day in, day out. So it, I guess it helped a little bit. Um, but now it's you are, they look for you. You know, the employees look for you. And it doesn't matter if it's a dishwasher, a busser, a bar back, a manager, a GM, an AGM. Um, you know, it, 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 in their world, you know, that is the most important piece at that point. And for me to come up with excuses, oh, I'm too busy, I can't, you know, you have to find time. You have to make that work. Well, I was going to say, I think that's really special because there's a lot of folks out there probably that would say be on the bottom rungs of a business that probably wouldn't want one of the owners to know their name. You know what I mean? Just so they can kind of hang out in the shadows, just earn their paycheck and go home under the radar. But that's special that you kind of get everybody together and you know everybody. Yeah, and it is. And and it's, look, it's harder to know everybody now than what it was five years ago for us, no question. But I I always, my, I I always want to 
make sure that when I am with an employee that I am listening, you know, because look, employees, like one of my strengths is remembering certain things about people. I, names, I'm horrible. But certain things that they've told me, whether it's about their son's name or their mom's birthday or whatever, there's these, these things. And to me, remembering that is a big piece of, you know, being aware, you know, and building that relationship with the employees and trying to find that connection, whatever it might be. And yeah, and, you know, for me is, you know, we, we've done, it's interesting you brought that up about the, the not knowing the name, but we just recently rolled out this new program where we got a phone, a cell phone, uh, with a, it's a text only phone and or number. And what we do is we give it the phone number out to the staff and there's no contacts in it. We don't have any. So it's anonymous. It's anonymous and they can text at any time. And it could be anything from they don't like something, they love something, they have a thought, they have an idea, they just want to ask a question about the group. Um, and it's, it's we rolled it out about three months ago now, and it's so far not too bad. I think we've got about thirty texts on the on the phone so far, um, and it's we're we're trying to find different ways to stay connected to our employees and kind of get the. Um, um, the information to the employees because we spend a lot of time with the managers, you know, more so than the employees. Sure, um, but there's that 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 ends up being a a block in some ways, you know, because we're not, you know, in there with the employees. You know, we just started. Um, we we do these meetings every week with the stores, but we did them at our office. So today we said, you know what, we're going back into the stores. So now we have the meetings in the stores now. Um, just so we can be back in there and if employees see us and we don't, we're really worried about becoming, oh, the owners are on this high horse or they sit on the mountain and they're not connected to things. It's, it's not who we are. Um, and we really want to stay connected to that and have that opportunity for employees to be able to give, have a voice, you know, because I said, I say it all the time to my guys is like, look, the line cook is the most important person, you know, or the, the person doing the job is the most important piece of the puzzle. Cause I can come in and say, Hey, look, this is how we're going to set things up. We're going to do this, 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 and this. Well, once service starts, all that could be completely wrong. Well, the best person to tell me I'm wrong is the person doing the job, but most people don't want to because, Oh, the chef said, I just got to do it his way, but it's, I'm miserable because it doesn't work. That was my next question is how often do they come to you? You know, um, I think over time it's getting more and more because I think they, the other big part of that is, is making sure that we do listen, you know, and make those changes. And I think now, you know, over my years of building these teams and, and the kitchens and being a face and, and pretty approachable, I feel, um, and I know, I think my employees would say that, um, they're comfortable coming to me now. And, and that's a really important piece. I was and, comfortable coming to you, obviously. And so. that's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think, and, and look, and some things are just ludicrous and we'll tell them that too. Sure. We'll let them know that, look, great, but yeah, that's never going to happen. But, but thanks for speaking up. And sometimes that's all people want to hear too. As long as they got to say what was on their chest a little, you know, and they get told, no, it's okay, as long as they had an opportunity. And I think that's for us is we're constantly trying to find ways to open up that dialogue with our employees. I think so many people are just not expecting when an owner or manager or somebody above them, I'll say, quote unquote, mm -hmm. says, how can this be better? And then just wait for them to tell you. Yeah. Because a lot of times they don't have much to say. No, they don't. And, and so out of those 30 texts you receive, I wonder how many of those are negative versus positive. Um, I, th I think, 
you know, I would say 50-50. That's awesome. Um, I would say, you know, a negative one would be, for example, uniform. That we have one of our spots where the employees hate the uniforms we we do. <laughs> and, you know, the managers tell us. But, you know, we brush it off. Oh, you know, it, it, we're getting it secondhand news. And then one of our employees, you know, sent a real detailed, thoughtful text about this uniform and why this person thought this is no good. And we changed the uniforms because of it. Now, was this a comfortability thing? Yeah, it was, was comfortability, it a function? function. It was a bit of everything. Um, it was it was a bit of all of the above. Um, but it was so thoughtful and so well written that we're like, we got to re- we got to make this work, you know. And and for us, it was a big win because. We don't still don't know who the employee was. Obviously, we know what store it was from because it was a certain uniform. But what we hope from that is that that now employee, whoever it was, tells other employees that, hey, look, I did this and look what happened. It worked. Yeah. So that's the ultimate goal. And, and I think and, and we've also had an employee send a text again. We don't know that we responded to. And that's the craziest thing we ever heard. That's never going to happen. But thanks. And. But at least we we responded, and we say that we'll respond within 24 hours. That's what we tell them once that text comes through. That's cool. And just trying to open up those doors because as we get bigger and we have more and more employees, it, it does get harder and harder to stay connected. So there is that stigma of, oh, they're the owners, you know, or when we come into the restaurant because now – I come into our restaurants at all different times. Sometimes it's in the morning during prep. Sometimes it's in the middle of service. And I come in, you know, I'm wearing a hoodie and I walk into Born and Raised, let's say, and there's a couple new employees. And I come in looking like I own the place, you know, and they're probably looking at, who's this guy walking in here, right? Do I why stop why does he look like he owns the yeah, place? <laughs> like he's wearing a hoodie and Born and Raised on a Friday night at 9 o'clock. So it's, you know, it's, it's trying to make sure that we're staying connected, you know, and, and, it, it it's hard, but it, it is the value in that is, is 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 it's priceless. Sure. Yeah. So what's easy? Um, getting up every morning to do what I do. True. It's I I still love it, you know. And I think I feel so fortunate to have fallen into something that I just absolutely love more than anything. That's epic. And it the it's it's challenging. It's rewarding. Um, it's something new every day. Um, you know, there's really, and I thrive on that. I'm not, you know, probably one of my weaknesses is like systems. I'm not a very systematic person. And I think it comes from a lot of my line cooking days and just the change and the pace, but I'm very, um, Oh, cause the systems that you were working within kept changing. Yeah. And guests coming in and, you know, you, you know, some nights you do 300 covers, some nights you do hundred covers, hundred people show up at once. I was very good at just going with the flow. It was one of my strengths. So I'm not a very um, systems person, which drives some of my people crazy because a lot of my things are like, I'll think about it tonight at 10 o'clock, and then I'm texting them at 10.30 at night saying, hey, we should change this tomorrow morning at 7 a.m., um, and, and, you know, and a lot of people like structure and I'm just, I'm okay with right. not a lot of structure. You're Bruce on. Lee, man. Yeah. Just it's, flowing it's, like it's water. Just flow it, you know? And, and so I, I think that's, and I love that part of what we do. It's ever changing. You know, there's always something new. You know, I, I start my day off with a list of 10 items. And when I get home at night, it's probably 20 items, you know, t- I added 10 more on and I didn't get to any of the ones I was supposed to get to. And so I don't know, it, it's something that I truly can say that I love more than anything. Um, and to kind of you know, come from a small town in Canada, you know, to a, you know, a big city in America. You know, I, I always had these dreams of America from when I was a young child. I, I think probably because of sports, 
you know, that's kind of how I learned geography was where these sports teams right. were from. Yeah. So I, I always had this fascination with America. So to get to do what I do now in this amazing city in San Diego, what more can I ask for? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you touched very, very briefly early on in our conversation about doing competitions. Like, what did those mean to you and how did they sort of shape your process or lack thereof potentially and kind of like your career? Um, I mean, very important. I, I think because what we forget or what employees forget sometimes is, you know, we're a very creative industry. You know, there's a lot of musicians and artists and, and all these types, very artistic individuals that join hospitality. You know, just cooking is an art, making a drink is an art in a lot of ways, some people would say. I think for me, what the, but we forget that it's a business. So we have to execute the plan first before we start creating new. And I think what the competitions really gave us an opportunity when I was a young cook was to learn something new because we had this job we had to do for our eight to 10 hours or in Europe for 16 hours a day. Uh, there wasn't any room for learning. Once you learn that perfected that dish, you're going to do that dish for the next how many years you worked. So what the competitions really gave me was a, a really a release to kind of learn more, you know, because we got to do different food, different dishes and so on. So it definitely it helped me grow in that way at a young age of just learning something new outside of the mundane of everyday business. Right. Well, I've met your wonderful wife, Jana, and uh, the restaurant life usually commands a pretty crazy schedule. How do you keep that balance? I mean, you sort of also sort of touched on that as well, being maybe a little less so now. But yeah, I mean, it, it's as I'm as I grow um the biggest thing that we go through is obviously, you know, time, you know, you have only a certain amount of time to do anything in a day. And what I've learned over time is that I can't do it all myself. And I think I wasn't like that when I was a young sous chef, my first chef job, you know, I felt I had to be there because no one could do it as good as me. Sure. But as we learn, you know, uh, that team is the most important part. So obviously having a solid team makes my life a lot easier and that's on me to build a solid team train give the keys over and away you go but that being said no matter how well you are in this industry is 24 7 one way or another but i've learned that you know a discipline in your personal life is just as important as in your business life and i you know we go on a big trip every year that's a big thing that we do um, at least two weeks to get away and I'm very fortunate that when I am away, you know, my team lets me be away. Unless it's an absolute emergency and they don't know, I might get a text, but that doesn't really happen. So that's the one way we break away. I take Sundays off for the most part. Is like I usually kind of get in, you know, do kind of a half day on Saturdays. I'm usually done by 4 o'clock on Saturdays. Um, and then I take that night off and then Sundays is kind of a discipline. So we know that we have that day and that's what we can really plan. Um, but yeah, I'm just fortunate that she's kind of gets it, you know, at the most part. And she knows that if there's an opportunity where I can sneak away and get out, then I'm going to take that opportunity. I think there was times where, you know, I just hung out to hang out, you know, and now I know that, look, if I can sneak away for a cut, get a couple extra hours, I'm going to take full advantage of it for yeah, sure. Definitely. Yeah. Does she have a favorite dish of yours? She's probably my biggest critic. 
And she really is. And and it's funny because that's um, good. At least it's it, in the it, privacy it, of it, your own home. <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes not either. <laughs> really? um, no, it's pretty interesting because, you know, it's funny because Arsalan always laughs at me about because Jana's pretty critical of my food. And I use Jana a lot when we eat out because she's kind of like what you're, you know, she's not a chef. She's not trained. She's been fortunate to eat in a lot of great places since we've been together because i like to eat in great places and it's the same palette you're going it, to yeah exactly and and so she and she has a pretty good palette and she's you know she knows what she likes and what she dislikes and so but it's neat because she'll never sugarcoat you know she won't just say it's good to tell me it's good she's pretty honest that's great and you know when i cook at home she's always you know poking and prodding and tasting and saying are you sure that's right is that cooked enough? What are you doing with that? I don't think that's right. You're really heavy handed with salt. <laughs> and it's just like, it's amazing, you know? And, and anyhow, we do donuts at Ironside. You know, we have these, these donuts we do there. And, and our son said to her one day, he says, Oh, do you like Jason's donuts? And Janice says, Nope, I don't like them at all. Is it a texture? Thing? I, I don't know. I can't remember why she said now. I don't even remember why she said it, but I think it was texture. Um, but he just, Arsene thought that was the funniest thing because, you know, here's your wife who typically would probably support anything you did. Right. Not Jana. Um, but it keeps me, you know, pretty humble. Humble, you know? yeah, and, yeah. And, and I do like that part of it because, you know, look, I don't want someone telling me everything is good if it's not. You know, where does that take me? So we have a lot of banter with that, you know, and it's, it's, it's she's fun to cook with because of that, you know. So, and she doesn't cook. I mean, she really doesn't. It's just not something she likes. She makes the best tacos street tacos amazing street tacos and a great fried egg sandwich that's kind of her thing amazing yeah so what percentage would you say you eat out in your personal life versus cook at home uh 80 out 20 percent home and it, that, that's growing more now at just home, because though. you don't want to spend time in the kitchen yeah, no not so much that I, I i think it's more laziness you know you <laughs> kind of get home and you, and a lot of times i don't know when i'm going to be home so it's hard to plan and cooking is, a, you need to have a bit of a plan at times, you know, you, you want to be able to flow. Um, but that being said, that is climbing a little bit. I mean, two, three years ago, that was probably more 95% out, 5% at home. Um, but I am enjoying cooking at home much more now. I really do. You know, I'm put the music on, have a glass of wine. Congrats on the new copper and, pots and pans. Yeah. And, and yeah, we just remodeled our kitchen. So <laughs> I've got a nice stove in there now. So awesome. I, I have it set up. So it's as close to a professional kitchen as it can be. And we have a deal, Jana. Another great thing about Jana is that I cook, she does dishes. So excellent, excellent relationship there. It's amazing. Um, so yeah, so it, it is cause you get spoiled cooking in a professional kitchen. And sometimes if you're not set up at home, it's amazing how spoiled we get. And you're like, I don't want to cook at home. I don't have any equipment I need. So most couples, right? You come home. What do you want for dinner? I don't know. What do you want for dinner? I, I don't know. What's your go-to meal? Uh, probably pizza, pizza for sure. Definitely pizza. That's, that's mine. Yeah. That's I, my go-to I, answer a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. I mean, if it's, if we don't know it's pizza for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. Or, or probably sushi, I guess, would be second. That's that's my wife's. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> um, so, your podcast. Let's talk about it. You launched today. Yeah, this morning. As a matter of fact, yeah. you launched a la Netflix the whole season at once. We did. Yeah. And there's eight episodes. Eight episodes. Yeah. So, let's hear about it. Yeah. So what's it's it called, about? Uh, Jason's Shitty Chef Driven Podcast. Um, kind of play on our donuts. You know, I think we're starting this whole brand here. I think we're going, but to me it was, I don't know. It wasn't something I really planned. I think I, um, I, you know, I don't like myself on TV at all. Like I truly don't like the way I sound on TV, 
but I did a podcast. I can't remember what podcast it was. And after I listened to it, I'm like, oh, I, I sound better on radio than I do or on, you know, that forum than I do on TV. I'm like, okay, I'm okay with that. And I was joking with my PR girl Kiki and, you know, and saying, and, and I said, look, I could do a podcast. I think I have the face for radio. You know? <laughs> and she thought that was kind of cute and, you know, whatever. I can't remember. I heard that quote somewhere along the line, but, and, uh, and then she came to me one day and she says, Hey, look, I'm pitching a podcast to NPR. And I was like, oh, cool. It's, all right, let's do it. And I, I don't know what happened with it. I think they were, it, it didn't really pan out. And so that was fine. And then all of a sudden she says, Hey, look, what about Callaway golf? And I'm like, well, I like to golf. I love golf, but I didn't know they did podcasts. And they said, yeah, they have one of the original podcast networks. Oh, they um, own the network. Yeah. So, so that was my next question is how you got paired up with those guys. Yeah. So they have this network that typically is golf, but what they, what they, um, what their drive is lifestyle is more about than golf with Callaway. Um, because look, I'm making their, their minds is how many, times are you buying a set of golf clubs you know once every six seven eight years okay well you need to find ways to keep that you know revenue coming in so they have this network and they never had a chef for a food you know podcast and they said hey do you want to go on and see if it works wow so i'm like okay let's do it so i did a pilot with them and i took anthony our bar manager excuse me and eric castro you know one of our our um uh partners at polite and raised by wolves and works at those two properties and because I was pretty comfortable with them. So we did the pilot and they loved it. And they said, yeah, we'll pick you up for a couple of seasons. Let's do this. Um, so they've been just incredible to work with. They have the studio set up. It's like, we show up, they do all the editing game plan. It's pretty awesome. So you're just in and out. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, I don't know. It was like, well, how can we be different? And I don't know what that is, but the, the ultimate goal is that, um, it's food related somehow there's a food connection to every episode. It doesn't mean that someone's a sh like we had, you know, one of our episodes, we had a girl that's a fitness instructor, but she also so teaches nutrition. nutrition. Yeah. Um, so it, there's uh, we had an influence, a foodie type influencer on just to kind of talk about that and how that works nowadays. So there's always a connection and it's not so much about, um, you know, what's your favorite place to eat? What's your favorite wine to drink? It's more about the story of how they got to where they are. And that was part of the exciting thing for me was kind of telling that story, you know, of, of, of the struggles along the way because, you know, we had a celebrity chef on who, you know, and the big ski, you look at her and you watch her, you think she's making millions of dollars a year because she's everywhere. But the struggle is real with her. You know, it's not that. She really had to, like, grind this out. So to me, it, we, I really wanted to tell these stories more than anything. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, it's funny cause I, I hadn't listened to any of the pie. I just started listening to them this morning, you know, like I was, I, I was pretty nervous about it, but so far they sound pretty good. So I'm excited about it. That's awesome. Um, I've got through three episodes. Um, but yeah, and, and it's, I don't know. We just wanted, I wanted to try something new. And, and I think that's for me is, um, you know, anytime I can try a new challenge, it's, it's pretty exciting. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So outside of work, what are you kind of into? Are you into, well, you said golf, golf right? Big, I love golf. If yeah. I could golf every day, I would golf every day. So is Callaway time, hooking you up or what? They have been amazing. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, awesome. they really have. Um, and you know, and they have a lot of, you know, you know, uh, foodies, you know, as they, we like to say that work at Callaway and they are always at our restaurants now. And it's just been this really great relationship. Um, it's been pretty cool and they've been so supportive, you know, in terms of just, you know, helping me kind of 
go through this and learn and it, it's been pretty amazing um but yeah I, I got a nice set of callaway golf clubs it's funny because i always played callaway oh and really I, and i switched to ping about a year and a half ago and so they threw sudden, those in a pond yeah, somewhere up said, there okay we'll get rid of those <laughs> give them away and we'll get you set up and it was fantastic i got i got to go up up in carlsbad they have the fitting center there and i got to do the whole thing with it i mean yeah it was incredible. Like it was such an amazing experience to go through. So they've been just pretty special for sure. So I actually used to work for Titleist. Oh wow! So okay. I'm, I'm a Titleist guy. Nice. But right. um, at any rate, um, <laughs> so you're into golf. Yeah. I know watches in the chef world. A lot of a lot of chefs are into watches. Have you ever gotten into that? I am. If I could afford watches, I would buy a lot of watches. But yeah, I mean, what's what's like on your radar? I have my say my money, no issue. Panerai. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I don't know a lot about watches. I really don't. I just like the look of certain watches. Sure. Yeah. And I really like the Panerai watch. I I, I have a Bomb Massier. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, it's funny when I first started dating Jana. We weren't together that long, but we were both making quite a bit of money at the hotel world at the Grand Amar. We had done very well for each other and we were single and didn't have bills. And, you know, I would just move to, you know, California. I was like living in heaven, you know, got myself a BMW. I went all out and I know we were shopping one day and, you know, new in that relationship. And I think it was around my birthday or something. And we went into a watch shop and I wanted this bomb. I said, I want that watch. And so I just, we bought it. I it was one of the coolest gifts I ever bought myself and she bought me as well. Um, but yeah, that's a big one. Um, another one I kind of like, I think it's called Blanc. Uh, Blanc Bon? Yeah. I kind of like them too, a little bit. Um, for one reason, mostly is because there's a very famous chef, Paul Bocuse, who recently passed away, I think right. last year. Yep. Uh, but he had a Blanc Pon. Blanc Pon. Yeah. Yep. Uh, in his kitchen on the wall. So I, that always attracted my, yeah, it was a big one. That was their, how they till time in their kitchen. Oh, no way. Yeah. So that it was like was, a wall clock. Yeah. It was amazing. So that always like stuck out to me. I don't know a lot about them, but that always stuck out with me. So I'm assuming you're into watches. I'm big. Yeah. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm a nut. Okay. And you know what's funny is like, even though I'm a nerd about them, a lot of the listeners to this podcast, yeah. my biggest listeners, like the, the most numbers on each of the episodes, yeah. they, they typically end up being the watch episodes. Oh, wow. Which is I'm like, well, I guess a lot more people are into watches than even I gave myself credit for. As far as what would you say? What's your favorite watch? You have a favorite, or well, I mean, the one I'm wearing is it was a gift from my wife for her wedding. Mm -hmm. So um, there's that. Um, But um, my my grandfather gifted me his watch that he wore for basically my entire life. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Sort of by way of my uncle, I should say. Yeah. Give credit where credit's due. So I kind of owe both of them for that. That one's super special. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch for sure, me. Of course. It, there's yeah. a time and a place, yeah, you know? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I got a little bit of a collection and, okay. and I enjoy wearing all of them, frankly. Wow, that's pretty cool. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk Panerai after this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. But um, cars, you're, in, you're into a Prius. Yeah, I got You had a I mean, BMW. If I had to pick my car, it'd yeah. be an Austin Martin. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, Particular model? No, I don't know enough about them. Just as just as long as Aston Martin's yeah, in the grill. Yeah, just as long as that. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I never was really into car. Like I liked them, sure. I you know, I could pick. I like that car, and I pick it. You know, because I like the shape or whatever it might be. But I don't know enough to kind of really like 
if someone said why i'd be like oh i don't know it looks good <laughs> um so yeah i've never really been i had a uh when i was growing up i had a 1969 uh pontiac gto amazing uh, that was a really cool car way more power than that than a 16 year old should be driving back then. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was pretty cool. And I didn't know enough to work on cars, but my best buddy worked on cars all the time. So he would do a lot of tune up for me. So that was a pretty cool car. And then my dad had a 67 Beaumont. Um, it was like a, like a, um, an Oldsmobile, I think it was. But it, it, it was an incredible car, too. I wasn't even allowed to sit in it. This car was so nice. Really? <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty special car. Uh, Is the car it, still around? No, or? he sold it. You know, pretty a long time ago now, but okay. But I think if I another car, I'd probably I'd go with like an old Corvette. Sure. I just think because I think that'd be cool, California old Corvette, like Stingray or yeah, like probably pre- Stingray. Yeah, yeah, okay. definitely, yeah, definitely. Nice. I think that'd be a cool California car. Little flair yeah. to, to you, Jason. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, um, random question: Chefs are very particular about their knives. Mm-hmm. I always collected like boot knives and like yep. Swiss Army knives and stuff as a kid. Yeah. So what knife? What's your go-to knife? Say, like ev- in the kitchen. I'm saying, if so, you had advice to tell people what knife they should get. I mean, I think that in terms of like a style of knife or a brand of knife, uh, or both. Say you can only you got money to buy one. I mean, oh man, that is that's hard. Um, so when we were in Japan last year, um, oh, the Damascus stuff. Yeah, and just like. The place we went, I can't remember the name of it now. It's totally, I'm drawing, drawing a blank. But it's been, um, for 550 years, it's been the same family making knives. They started making knives for samurais. Yeah, the swords. Yeah. The swords. Yeah. And then obviously that, so they had to figure out what to do. I, I can't remember. It's in Kyoto. I cannot remember the name of me for my life. They only take cash when you buy a knife how much are they they're actually not that bad anywhere from let's say 150 dollars to a thousand dollars got it but most of them are in that 200 to 350 dollar range which is typically a very reasonable price for knives now, like do you I have, have to like ship them back to get sharpened or like can you no, sharpen no i them sharpen here? all my own okay yeah, oh yeah, so I you sh- got them for yourself yeah I got, oh yeah for myself um but i i have a i use a brand um that's kind of a neat um kind of uh, um uh crossover knife in a sense um, because there's a Japanese knife, really, you can call it, and a European style. Okay. You know? And I'm a Sentoku guy. Yep. Awesome knife. That's my favorite. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, I think, an eight-inch Sentoku. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. And I use, so the, 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 the set that I love the most is my Ninox knives. I love them. And I got them in uh, New York at Corn Knife Shop in New York. And I have that full set, and I love that set. Um, and it's a great crossover knife where it's, you know, it's it's not the typical Japanese where it could be, you know, single edge. Like they're more of a European style, but Japanese design. Uh, so I think that's always a nice knife for people because I do think some of the Japanese knives are hard, you know, for an every, you know, a, a non-professional at times to use. How do you spell corn? Is K-O-R-I-N. Oh, corn. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Great night. Great shop in New York. I'll be in New York next week. Yeah. It's a great little shop in New York. I forget what street it's on, but yeah, you look it up. It's pretty amazing. Cool. Uh, shop. You'll, you'll really like that. And some of the knives they have in there are like upwards of ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. Okay. It's incredible. <laughs> I'm buying a watch. Yeah. <laughs> are you going just for a watch? No, 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 oh, okay. no, no, no. I'm saying for that amount of money. No, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll buy a watch. See, the neat thing is There's going to be moving parts in it yeah, if, yeah. if it's ten grand. Yeah, but to see a knife of that 
like you look at it and it's probably how you look at watches oh, sure. I look at knives you know yeah yeah and you see that knife and you're just like wow what i yeah. would do to have that i just it's incredible incredible yeah, it's special that's awesome what um okay so travel's huge you yeah. guys take a pretty robust vacation each year mm-hmm. you just got back from copenhagen and paris and yeah. paris yeah what why is travel important to you um, I, I think just education, you know, it, it's a vacation at the same time, but there really is always a piece of education for me. I spent just being in this industry, you know, I seek out those places to eat, those places to see, you know, obviously the museums are great and all the tourist spots are a part of it. Um, but I, I mean, this trip alone was, was, um, planned over a reservation I got at Noma in Copenhagen. Uh, because it it books up in seconds, and right. I just happened to get a reservation, and I said to my wife, I "said Okay, we're going to Copenhagen." She says, "Oh, when are we going?" I said, "In November." And she says, she looks online and says, "It's really cold in November there." I said, "Yep, <laughs> bundle up," <laughs> and we planned a trip around that reservation. So um, there's always part of that in part of my trips, um, just because I even though I do it as a profession, I love eating and enjoying good restaurants. I really do. And so travel has just been such an amazing thing. And it really was from a young age, you know, um, once I kind of got into that bug of traveling, it was just like, yeah, this is pretty cool. And the people you meet, the different cultures, all the things that go with it are just so special. Absolutely. I think that's what's cool about kind of going back to your point about growing up in the industry more or less Mm -hmm. and meeting all these people because they have interesting stories, but they're also coming from a totally different cultural and, and cuisine standpoint. Absolutely. I mean, I can't imagine ending up in Alberta with people from like, I don't know, Chile or yeah, somewhere. It's, you know? it's pretty crazy. And, you know, and I think that's the one thing I think that um, has been so special for me is I have friends all over the world now. Absolutely. You know, that some I have not seen in person for years, 10 years and 15 years. But I text with, you know, I send messages. We still talk as we were 15 years ago when we spent a year and a half in a kitchen together, like getting crushed by the chef and working 20 hours a day. And I don't know, like that is such a special thing for me that to know that um, I had that opportunity to do that. And I just I when people ask me if I should travel, I'm like, absolutely. Get on it. Yeah. Plane, train, whatever it takes. Go do it. I learned far more from traveling in Europe than I ever did in European history class. Hey, right. And and I was awful in geography and history. And now I could teach some of those classes just being lucky enough to go do it, you know, and, and it sticks with you way more. Absolutely. You know, and to say that you went there and you were a part of it, you know, it's pretty special. Advice. Maybe for those looking to travel or cook. Well, uh, to be a chef, yeah. To be a chef. Um, seek out where you want to go. Have a bit of a plan. And I, I think that gets lost a lot nowadays. Um, you know, we get it all the time where we get resumes and I'll call and say, you know, how did you hear of us? And, oh, I never heard about you. I saw it on Craigslist. Well, what kind of cuisine do you think we cook? I don't know. I just need a job. And... For me, I don't know, I, I think just for both parties, you know, for the employer and the employee, if if the employee is looking for a specific place they want to go learn at, they're probably going to be happier at. You know, if they want to learn fish and they apply at Soda and Swine, let's say in our group, and we hire them at Soda and Swine who does meatballs, they're probably not going to be very happy and they're going to leave after a couple months. So research a little bit of kind of where you want to go. Have a bit of a plan of, of how you want to do it. Um, it's definitely a marathon. You know, 
I think in our day and age now is it, it really is turned into a sprint, which I think kind of it, it sucks a bit because it's the, the instant gratification it, it is it's everywhere that right? process is so special you know along the way of kind of learning that process is you know when i was a young cook my goal was to be a chef by 35 i hear now 25 you know i hear cooks tell me all the time i want to own my own place at 25 i want to be a chef by 25 and i'm like i was nowhere near ready to be a chef at 25 you know and, and so it's just that's changed so i think a little patience do a little research, have a bit of a plan, and kind of go down a path that you really want to go down. Absolutely. What's your piece of advice for the layperson at home cooking? What's a common mistake? I, again, have a bit of a plan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. yeah. Because I do think uh, what happens is there's not much of a plan that goes into it. So frustration sets in, and then they don't want to do it. I don't like it. Right. They get frustrated. So I think have a little bit of a plan. Um, it'll be much more enjoyable. And just experiment. You know, um, you know, use a recipe you may find online or in a cookbook or wherever it might be, but don't be afraid to try something different and it may not work out, but that's okay. Make a note of it and try something different next time. But I think have a bit of a plan will make it much more enjoyable. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. What's uh, what's a guilty pleasure of yours? Cuisine wise. Uh, sugar. Yeah. Anything sweet. Yeah. Anything sweet. Uh, I'm all about is the, hence the donuts. Yeah, donuts and ice cream are two of my favorite things on earth. Um, <laughs> yeah, when I open a tub of ice cream at home, it doesn't go back in the it's, freezer. It's, it doesn't <laughs> matter how big that tub is. Uh, yeah, if, if we get a dozen donuts from a donut shop, they're not going stale. That's for sure. All right, so you've done a bit of traveling. I'm going to put you on the spot here. All right, I want a one-word answer. Okay. I've never done this before, so sure. this is something new. Name the first restaurant that comes to your mind when I say the following. Okay. San Diego. Trust. Italian. Cucina Urbana. Chicago. Alenia. Sushi. Oto. Los Angeles. Majordoma. Steak. Born and raised. New York City. David Chang. Momofuku, I guess. Restaurant. But anything David Chang does in New York City. Well, that was it. That's all I had for okay. you. <laughs> <laughs> right on, man. Yeah, Jason, this was much. awesome. Absolutely. Thank I you really for, uh, appreciate you taking the time. With me. Yeah, this was super fun. Cool. All right. Well, um, I'll probably see you in one of your restaurants Absolutely. very soon. Absolutely. All right, buddy. Cool. Thank you. See ya. All right. I just wanted to give Jason another shout out for taking the time. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. And again, I look forward to seeing you very soon. Funny, even after recording, Jason and I continued to chat a little bit. Turns out he's quite the sneakerhead as well. So we rapped about Air Jordans and sneaker shopping in Los Angeles and New York City long after my parking meter had run out. All good, though. I didn't get a ticket. So until next time, you guys, thank you so much for listening. Keep that good karma rolling. And don't forget to pay your parking meters. See you next week.